traditional academic anthropology, the uh, one of these precedes the other. Unger says, however, there's no reason why these couldn't have been simultaneous. You see, it speaks of Cain as a tiller of the soil, and Abel as one that had the flocks of sheep, the shepherd, and uh, simultaneously. Unger also says, you may have noted, that uh, these brothers went twins. And it's possible that Cain was many years older than Abel. And he may have started this uh, trying to work out a little basic for elementary agriculture even before Abel, his brother, was born. It's possible. You see, in, in these early chapters of Genesis, everything is told so briefly and in such a, a condensed manner that you get the impression that everything happened just about over one long weekend. Now, this is, of course, not the case. There may have been long periods of time in between. How long were Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden before they were put out of it? Mr. Sturgeon, you know the answer to that. No, you don't, and nobody else does either. <laughs> in the whole world. Uh, but this may have been years. The idea is this was only a couple of days. This is, uh, this is an illusion caused by the brevity of the narration in the story there. So um, it's possible that agriculture did precede the domesticating of animals by a part of a lifetime anyway. But there's also no reason why they should not have existed independently. Now, this also creates a um, problem about, uh, say, academic prehistory at this point. The Bible starts, starts out apparently in the Neolithic period. And here is the first generation of people with um, domesticating animals and um, planting the seed crops for grain. But according to secular prehistory, there was a very long period of time in the Paleolithic age when man was a food gatherer and did not plant anything. The Lascaux Cave in France dated about one, one horizon of it dated to 13,500 B.C. These people were hunters. They hunted and they fished. But as far as you can see from anything in the scores of pictures in that cave, they did not plant crops or gardens. And apparently they also did not have any domesticated animals. Now, uh, how can you reconcile that with the idea that um, the first two men born into this world became a gardener and a hunter. Adam and Eve, Adam was a kind of a landscape gardener before that. How could this be reconciled? Should we say that, um, well, the Genesis account is just incorrect? And the, uh, the accounts put together by circumstantial evidence from places like the Lascaux Cave and others, take that to correct. Is this for Mr. Brown? Are you inclined to do this? No. Well, uh, what would you say? This, this isn't the answer to that, then. I would say that maybe the, uh, the people up in the sand, uh, you know, like I said, in the 70s, people degenerated back into a work culture. It's like in the world today, some people do uh, get the food by agriculture and others by hunger. So yeah, and some what? by hunting or they go on welfare. <laughs> now, 
set and a thing can be lost and art can be lost again. Uh, most of Europe looked into the dark ages with the collapse of the Roman Empire, looked down to a much lower educational and cultural level than had been the case during the period of the Roman Empire. They were they were swamped by a barbarian invasion and the, the learning and many skills and techniques and so forth that were lost were out of sight for hundreds of years in uh, Central Europe. And then then comes finally the Renaissance and a lot of this stuff was rediscovered and redeveloped. But the so-called Dark Ages, you see, those are a lapse from a higher point previously held. So this is certainly possible. And the only reason people think that um, human progress must be an uninterrupted gradual upward curve is because they, they presuppose an evolutionary theory. And therefore, the data they take for granted must be somehow tied into that or fit into that. Now, if you want to question that and say, well, that's not necessarily true, then you will have to say that um, it is possible that um, some of these, some of these um, occupational um, gimmicks and secrets and so forth Later on, when people became widely separated, could have been lost, or uh, nearly so. Same thing comes up a little later, and you know about the discovery of the use of iron and bronze. So don't be hasty to say that the Bible is wrong. What we will probably have to say is, there is more time in Genesis chapters 1 to 11 than appears on the surface. There must have been more time gone by there than seems to be the case just as you read this, but that the Bible is incorrect in representing the first family of people as doing these different things, this uh, is completely um, hypothetical and unproven. Now, there were two lines of people. I heard a seminary student say, um, yes, and his descendants were pretty good, but Cain had a wicked line. Now, <laughs> This does not refer to a repertoire of cuss words, although very possibly he had some. Wouldn't be surprised at all. But which of these lines? The Abel was, was murdered, and therefore he was out of the picture. Then that leaves Cain and Abel. Later, Adam and Eve, we read, had sons and daughters, apparently quite a number, and their names are not given. But Cain and Abel. But Cain and Seth, rather. Seth, the third son of Adam. Which of these are we descended from? Anybody here want to claim Cain as an ancestor? <laughs> well, why couldn't we be descended from Cain? What happened to the people, Mr. Brown? Noah was of the line of Seth. Noah was of the line of Seth, and the Cainites, and uh, all Sethites that were mixed, uh, mixed marriages with Cainites perished in the flesh. And unless it is just barely possible that one of the wives of mm -hmm. one of them Noah's sons might have been. <laughs> no, no. Might have been a um, 32nd cousin or something of the, of the Canine line, which is possible. It might have been a spike mixture that way. But just by and large, the, the Canine perished in the flood, and the present population of the world is descended from Seth and from Noah. All right, now, um, which of these? Lines, according to the Bible, made the great pioneering, let's say, a cultural and technological discovery. 
remember that Sephites were the good people, Canaanites were the wicked people, but which had made the most progress in invention and discovery? Do you know the answer to that? Well, according to anybody want to answer that? The Canaanites. Contrary to what you might expect, you might expect the ones that were right with God would make the most progress, but this doesn't always happen. I read a book by a Christian writer and he said the heathen have no electric lights, implying that electric lighting is somehow a product of Christianity. You ought to go to Tokyo, the land of blazing displays of neon lights not to mention electric trains that are never late. And anyhow, they schedule a stop on a Japanese train of 30 seconds. And during that 30 seconds, people pile off at one end of the cars and on at the other, and they have people on the platform to push them on. <laughs> 30 seconds, toot toot, it starts up again. And uh, almost never that a train is late in Japan. Well, anyhow, the idea that technological progress, this kind of thing, is a product of Christianity, I'm afraid just isn't true. All through the Middle Ages, the Mohammed and Arabs were far ahead of Christian Europe in mathematics, chemistry, medicine, and numerous other branches. And it wasn't until after the Renaissance, in fairly modern times, that the so-called Christian nations of the world took the lead over the Mohammedan nations. It was the Mohammedans that preserved Greek learning and the Greek scientists and philosophers in Arabic translation through the Middle Ages. And uh, this may, maybe we will like this, so it's true. Yeah. Because the beginning of Christian Well, over against the Muslims. Who won the crusade? The Mohammedans. The, the Latin and Western powers finally had to back up and let them have it. So all through the um, Middle Ages, say, from well, Mohammed died in 632, and by 732, Islam was knocking on the doors of southern France. And only stopped with great difficulty by Charles Martel, and it pitched up. And uh, from there on, Islam, or the the Arabs and Mohammedan countries were in the forefront in scientific and, let's say, technical progress. And uh, Europe was um, greatly retarded and very backward about these things. Even the great uh, Catholic uh, scholastic philosophers were partly dependent on Arab-preserved manuscripts for their knowledge of the early Greek philosophy. This is not complimentary to us Christians, but uh, well, it's fashion, true. Anyway, now then, it's the line of Cain that invented the, the basic uh, cultural inventions of civilization. And you go down the line of Cain so you come to um, um, a man named Lennox. This fellow had a perfectly amazing family. They maybe weren't nice, but they were brilliant. And he had three sons and one daughter. Her name was Naaman. That just means pretty or pleasant, but um, that's a common name in the Old Testament. But um, he had two wives, Ada and Zillah. This is the first fellow that ever got his nerve up to try that device. Not the last, but the first. I mean, two at the same time. Ada and Zillah. And his three sons, Jabal, 
Jubal, and Tubal Kings. Now these were famous for progress along three different lines. Jubal, the domesticating of cattle, and uh, living in tents. Two things, of course, that go together. You go where the grass is for the passion of your tent. And Jubal, the father of such as handled a harp and organ. It's a stringed instrument from the wind instrument. The student asked you, said, where were the percussion instruments? Well, they didn't have that. But um, no doubt, very simple. Perhaps he learned how to fix some cat gutter with a pumpkin shell or something, and there's the fiddle of sorts. And perhaps he learned how to carve out a set of whistles from willow wood that uh, each of them would go a note on a different pitch, and there's the beginning of the pipe organ. But you see, somebody has to take the basic first step. Every journey starts with one step out of your door. And then um, when it says that, that Jubal was the father of such as handled a harp and organ, this doesn't mean he had anything like he got an alumni all over there, so to speak. But merely that this man made the initial discoveries that later led on to the development of musical instruments, as we think of them historically. And Tubal came an instructor of every worker in brass or bonds and iron. And um, this is um, a problem here because according to academic prehistory, there was a long um, Paleolithic and Neolithic age in which all tools and weapons were made of stone. And it isn't until you get to the Chalcolithic or bronze and bronze stone age at the end of the Neolithic that began to make things a copper or bronze. Now, um, this again, I don't think is an insoluble problem. It doesn't say that Tubalcane owned a steel mill or even a blacksmith shop, but only he was an instructor of every worker. In other words, this man laid some groundwork and made some pioneering discoveries Possibly it was meteoric iron that he worked with. It doesn't have to be smelted. It's practically metallic. But anyway, um, this could have been known and yet lost to mind for ages in large parts of the human race before it was developed into any kind of an industry. Do you know aluminum is one of the cheapest metals today? There's uh, lots of it in the sand of the Earth's crust. But 100 years ago, aluminum was a museum curiosity. Look in a glass showcase, and here's a half a pound of aluminum and a little tag on it, aluminum. And it was scarce and very expensive. Now, the, see, it was known, and people knew how to refine it out of the ore, but it was not commercially used. There was no process by which it could be economically produced in quantities at that time. So what was aluminum? It was a museum curiosity. And maybe things of iron and bronze were like this for a long time. Much later, the Hittites up in what is today Turkey worked out a process for producing iron commercially in quantities. And they had a corner on this. This was their monopoly, and they were very reluctant to share it with anybody else. And the king of Egypt sent a letter to a Hittite king, and this letter has been found in the archives of Tel el in Egypt. And he uh, rattles him up with the little soft stroke and calls him his dear brother and everything. And then, I, I want some good iron from your warehouse, please. And this hip king sends the answer back. You have asked for good iron from my warehouse. 
Next year, good iron is not in my warehouse. This has not been a good year for producing iron. Another year will be a good year for producing iron. I can send you some then. Meantime, with my best regards, I'm sending you one iron dagger. And that's all that King of Egypt got. Now, not that the Hittites didn't have any, but why are they going to give it to their enemies? So, uh, all the King of Egypt got was a little souvenir, one iron dagger, for his trouble. All right, now, um, um, Peter says copper came into use about 4,500 B.C. And by 3,000 B.C., a thousand years before the time of Abraham, Copper was the main material for tools and weapons. Copper either by itself or hardened by alloying it with some tin or other metals to make bronze, which is much harder than plain copper. Now, um, I'll read you note I got here. This is question 53. The fact that there was a long Neolithic period before the use of copper became general does not contradict the biblical statement that Tubal-Cain was the forerunner of those that worked metal. It is entirely possible that although Tubal-Cain made the pioneering discoveries, the general use did not come until ages later. And uh, he goes on to speak of the earliest known sites revealing uh, these inventions. The potter's wheel, the sailboat, wheel vehicles, and um, bricks, copper and bronze items, and cylinder seals, which you can roll on a clay uh, substance and uh, continue to make it seal as far as you roll it. Now, can you recall from reading this um, how old the oldest known object made of iron is? This is in the question 51, I believe. The oldest the oldest archaeological evidence of an iron tool. Miss Miss Moore. Twenty seven hundred BC, huh? Yeah. This is Wolf, that's your name, isn't it? Sure, I uh, you know, you didn't get mad and I can't make up the name. <laughs> you forget your own name. Well, you are mixed up. <laughs> well, you know, professors are notoriously absent-minded. I went to get something out of the cabinet in room 23 this morning, and here was uh, Mr. Hill's uh, big bunch of keys hanging in the lock, and the cabinet's not shut. I've been that way all night. So I called him up and asked him if he lost some keys. He said, no, he didn't think so. <laughs> but they were his keys. And I heard of a professor who... Um, had pancakes for breakfast, and he poured syrup on his head and scratched the pancakes. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is the ultimate. <laughs> You're ready to retire. Like All right. Now then, 2700 B.C., this is still a, a long time after the time of Tubal King. Probably a great long time after. But anyhow, it's uh, a long time also before the use of iron became general. And Andrew says, question 52, the use of iron did not become general until 1200 B.C. and after. This would be after the time that the Israelites entered Canaan under Joshua. The um, 
Canaanites were in the early Iron Age. And the Israelites that came in to take that country from them were in the late Bronze Age. The Canaanites were in on the secret of producing iron tools and weapons. This gave them an edge over the Israelites. Literally, an edge. <laughs> but you see, something can be known without being widely used. And Unger also says, all through the previous period, before 1200 B.C., there's evidence of sporadic and occasional and slight use of metal. So that this was not something simply unknown that started about 1200 B.C. Now the Chapter 4, The Flood in the Sumerian and Babylonian Tradition. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just a minute, wait till I cut this thing. Yeah. You mean this one in Tanganyika? Yeah. I don't think they proved it was a settlement. I think all they found was bones. As far as I know, it's written up in the Geographic magazine. It claims it's the origin of humanity from these the Zinganthropus and other um, sort of um, man-like forms. They were very much smaller than people today. Uh, sort of a Kiwi race, you know. But um, I don't think that they, that they were laboring less. I read into this on whether they could prove that these um, previous owners of these bones could make tools or not of any kind, even like a little... Uh, out of stone to cut things with or something like that. And this was regardless debatable by the anthropologists and was still um, in process and not, not finished yet and so forth. And, and with whatever they had, whatever they found in Tanzania, it's nothing at all like what was found in Upper Mesopotamia and in uh, other places he mentioned. Now, just to um, go back to that a minute here. The oldest known settlement is uh, Tel Hassuna. And uh, coeval with that, or about the same age, the lowest level, way down at the bottom of the mound at Nineveh. And uh, then uh, another place called Tepe Gaura. These were um, Neolithic settlements, and definitely uh, there are uh, evidences that this was a city or a town. And um, dated by Dr. Unger and everybody else as at least 5,000 B.C. So, uh, this, of course, you can't hold Escher's chronology and hold that at the same time, but 5,000 B.C., this is still Neolithic. These people had a town or a city and houses and so forth, but still, they had no metal tools, but only stone tools, Neolithic polished and quite effective stone tools. You know, I um, saw a cartoon in Mad Comics <laughs> of a caveman, you know, one of these big brawny hairy guys sitting in front of his cave and talking to another caveman. He says, tell me, Brontosaur Chopper, do you think the stone axe is the ultimate weapon? <laughs> well, the stone axe is the ultimate weapon until somebody invents one that's more ultimate. And do you know, a good crack with a stone axe could kill you exactly as dead as an atom bomb threat. There's no degrees of being dead. And uh, these people uh, maybe could do much more than we think with their stone tools and so forth. 
asked, okay, no use of metal at all, and yet uh, highly artistic in the wall paintings and ceiling paintings in there. All right, now, uh, we have the story of the flood. This is the most remarkable parallel from uh, ancient Near Eastern archaeology to anything in the Bible. The uh, story of the flood in uh, one uh, Sumerian version, and uh, I believe there are four uh, Babylonian versions. And he takes up the Sumerian first. Did these kings live a while? There were eight kings that ruled in Lower Mesopotamia before the flood. The uh, shortest reign, 18,600 years for one man. The longest reign, 43,200. And it adds up to a total of 241,200 years. Well, they didn't die young, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, then uh, we have the other forms of this in the Akkadian language, or Babylonian language, which gives uh, even greater figures, even higher figures. Now, does he say that, you see, these, these Sumerian records give the names of these eight kings that they say ruled before the flood. Can any of those be tied in with any of the names given in the Bible of the period before the flood? Well, uh, if you say no, you're on safe ground. <laughs> they can't. These uh, people have tried and tried to figure out um, how it could be a, a coincidence or a, a, a relationship between these names. This attempt fails completely. Eight kings claimed to have ruled before the flood. Then there's a little break in the tablet, and it says, Then the flood swept over the earth. After the flood had swept over the earth, when kingship was lowered again from heaven, kingship was first in Kish. Now, uh, the diagram in Wiseman's book that I passed around shows you the flood layer that Sir Leonard Woolley found at earth, which he claimed was from the biblical flood. Woolley, however, believed that Noah's flood was only a local affair and that it, it was just localized in that area. And you would have to say this indeed. If this was the flood, there was nothing to keep that water from just spilling out and getting thinner every mile it went further. Uh, the flat plain, a pancake tabletop flat plain of the lower Euphrates and Tigris rivers, is going to have a flood there. What's going to hold the water in? Another book that I read said, well, the, the river, um, the river, the rivers changed their course and for a period of some years flowed over a part that had been inhabited, that had graves and foundations of houses and broken pottery and so forth. The river changed its course and it flows over that. This deposits this uh, eight-foot-thick layer of, of silt or clean clay with no artifacts or bones or anything in it. And then later on, the river changes its course again and uh, this becomes an archaeological deposit. There where Abraham lived is today, the ruins of it are today, seven miles from the banks of the Euphrates River. But in Abraham's day, Ur was a river port. And they also used this very handily. Anybody that had been bad, they tied their hands behind them back and put them in the river. And that was that. Didn't have any prison racks, they just throw you in the river. <laughs> and um, 
So these rivers, like rivers in the United States today, have changed their course. Here we had to come with a new treaty with Mexico because the Rio Grande River had changed its course and a piece of Mexico seemed to have become a piece of the United States and the Mexicans didn't like it. And uh, you have to adjust to this. All right, now, uh, Allie's Bible Handbook blows this up very much too hard as if it were proof of the Bible account of the flood. Now, um, we have one Sumerian account of this and four Akkadian or Babylonian accounts that are in a Semitic language. And uh, the general features agree, but the Babylonian, which were written later, these are not the oldest, the Sumerian is the oldest, has more details and a fuller statement. The uh, Noah of the Babylonian and Sumerian flood story in Sumerian is Diosidra. And um, in the Akkadian or Babylonian story, his name gets translated into Utnapishtim. Both of these mean the same thing, day of life. Day of life is the man's name. Now then... Um, academic freedom. This kind of a racket or din. Now, uh, the Babylonian hero of the flood, what was his name? Oh, I just told you. Zia Sidra or Utnapishtim, and this is found in the Gilgamesh epic. I'm going to give us a few quotes. I think I'll read you, though. This is the epic of Gilgamesh with comments in English, however, but the story of the flood. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with the story of Noah and from the Bible, but this is the, this is the Babylonian version, the Akkadian or Babylonian version of the story of the flood. You will find some funny names of people in here and some funny names of the gods, but don't make that for you. Stay with You know the city Shurapak. It stands on the banks of Euphrates. That city grew old, and the gods that were in it were old. There was Anu, Lord of the Firmament, their father, and the warrior Enlil, their counselor, Ninurta, the helper, and Nugi, the watcher over canals, and with them also was Ea. In those days the world teemed, people multiplied, the world bellowed like a wild bull, and the great god was aroused by the clamor. Enlil heard, heard the clamor, and he said to the gods in council, The uproar of mankind is intolerable. Least is no longer possible by reason of the Babel. This is one of the gods uh, making a motion in the physical. So the gods in their hearts were moved to let loose the deluge. But my lord Ea warned me in a dream. He whispered their words to my house of reeds. Reed house, reed house, wall, oh wall, hearken reed house, wall reflects. O man of Surapak, son of Ubara, tear down your house and build a boat. Abandon possessions and save life. 
despise worldly goods and save your soul alive. Tear down your house, I say, and build a boat. These are the measurements of the bark as you shall build her, that her beam equal her length, that her deck be roofed over like the vault that covers the abyss, then take up into the slope the seed of all living creatures. When I had understood, I said to my Lord, Behold, what you have commanded I will honor and perform. But how shall I answer the people, the city, and the elders? Then Ea opened his mouth and said to me, his servant, Tell them this. I have learnt that Enlil is wrathful against me. Notice the, the bickering among the gods in this story. Enlil is wrathful against me. I dare no longer walk in his land nor live in his city. I will go down to the gulf to dwell with Ea, my lord. But on you he will rain down abundance. Rare fish and shy wildfowl, a rich harvest tide. In the evening of the, the rider of the storm will bring you wheat and corn. Uh, I think this is all to deceive a cool people. In the first light of dawn, all my household gathered around me. The children brought pitch to mend whatever was necessary. On the fifth day, I laid the keel on the ribs, and I made fast the planking. The ground space was one acre. Each side of the deck measured 120 cubits, making a square. The uh, Babylonian ark was cube-shaped, like the New Jerusalem in the Book of Revelation. The length, breadth, and height of it were equal. Would you like to take a ride in a ship like that? The height equal to the length equal to the breadth. Mr. Harris, is going to be top-heavy? Well, uh, didn't bother. Happy uh, way to feel what? Happy way to feel what? I don't know. He says he did. I'm not sure how you could do this. Anyhow, this is this is what it says. Uh, I built six decks below, seven in all. I divided them into nine sections with bulkheads between. I drove in wedges where needed. I saw to the punt poles and laid in supplies. The carriers brought oil in baskets. I poured pitch into the furnace and asphalt and oil. More oil was consumed in coffins. And again, the master of the boat took into his stores more oil. I slaughtered boats for the people, and every day I killed sheep. I gave the ship's price wine to drink as though it were river water. Uh, raw wine and red wine and oil and white wine. There was feasting then, as there is at the time of the New Year's festival. I myself anointed my head. On the seventh day, the boat was complete. Then was the launching full of difficulty. There was shifting of ballast above and below till two-thirds was submerged. I loaded into her all that I had of gold and of living things, my family, my kin, the beasts of the field, both wild and tame, and all the craftsmen. I sent them on board, for the time that Shemash, that the sun god, had ordained was already fulfilled, when he said, In the evening, when the rider of the storm sends down the destroying rain, enter the boat and batten her down. The time was fulfilled. The evening came. The rider of the storm sent down the rain. I looked out at the weather, and it was terrible. So I, too, boarded the boat and battened her down. All was now complete, the battening and the caulking. So I handed the tiller, that's the steering wheel, on a, the, uh, the helm on a boat, the tiller, which is steered by, to Puzer Amuri, the steersman, with navigation and uh, care of the whole boat. With the first light of dawn, a black cloud came from the horizon. It thundered within, where Abad, lord of the storm, was riding. In front, over hill and plain, Shalet and Hanish, heralds of the storm, led on. 
Then the gods of the abyss rose up. Nergal pulled out the dams of the nether water. Then Murtaugh, the warlord, threw down the dike. The seven judges of hell, the Anunnaki, raised their torches, lighting the land with their livid flames. A stupor of despair went up to heaven when the god of the storm turned daylight into darkness, when he smashed the land like a cup. One whole day, the tempest raged, gathering fury as it went. It poured over the people like the tides of battle. A man should not see his brother nor the people he seen from heaven. Even the gods were terrified at the flood. They fled to the highest heaven, the firmament of honors. They crouched against the walls, towering like dogs. And Ishtar, the sweet voice, queen of heaven, cried out like a woman in travel. Alas, the days of old are turned to dust because I commanded evil. Why did I command this evil in the council of all the gods? I commanded wars to destroy the people, but there are they not my people, for I brought them forth. Now like the spawn of fish they float in the ocean. The great gods of heaven and of hell wept. They covered their mouths. For six days and six nights the wind blew. Horn and tempest overwhelmed the world. Tempest and flood raged together like warring hosts. When the seventh day dawned, the storm from the south subsided, the sea grew calm, the flood was stilled. I looked at the face of the world and there was silence. All mankind was turned to clay. The surface of the sea stretched as flat as a rooftop. I opened a hatch and the light fell on my face. Then I bowed low. I sat down and I wept. The tears streamed down my face, for on every side was the waste of water. I looked for land in vain. At fourteen leagues distance there appeared a mountain, and there the boat grounded. On the mountain of Nisir the boat held fast. She held fast and did not budge. One day she held. A second day on the mountain of Nisir she held fast and did not budge. A third day, a fourth day, she held fast on the mountain and did not budge. A fifth day and a sixth day she held fast on the mountain. When the seventh day dawned, I let loose a dove and let her go. She flew away, but finding no resting place, she returned. Then I loosed a swallow. She flew away, but finding no nesting place, she returned. I loosed a raven. She saw that the waters had retreated. She ate, she flew around and clawed, and she did not come back. Then I threw everything open to the four winds. I made a sacrifice and poured out a libation on the mountaintop. Seven and again seven cauldrons I set up on their stands. I heaped up wood and cane and cedar and myrtle. When the gods smelled the sweet savor, they gathered like flies over the sacrifice. Then at last Ishtar also came. She lifted her necklace with the jewels of heaven that once Anu had made to please her. O ye gods here present, by the lapis lazuli around my neck, I shall remember these days as I remember the jewels of my throat. These last days I shall not forget. But all the gods gathered around the sacrifice except Enlil. He shall not approach this offering, for without reflection he brought the flood. He consigned my people to destruction. When Enlil had come, when he saw the boat, he was lost and swelled with anger at the gods, the host of heaven. Has any of these mortals escaped? Not one was to have survived the destruction. Then the god of the wells now the Mosah opened his mouth and said to the warrior Enlil, Who is there of the gods that can devise without Ea? It is Ea alone who knows all things. Then Ea opened his mouth and spoke to the warrior Enlil, Wisest of gods, hero Enlil, how could you so senselessly bring down the flood? 
lay upon the sinner his sin, lay upon the transgressor his transgression, punish him a little when he breaks loose. Do not drive him too hard or he perishes. Would that a lion had ravaged mankind rather than the flood. Would that a wolf had ravaged mankind rather than the flood. Would that famine had wasted the world rather than the flood. Would that pestilence had wasted mankind rather than the flood. It was not I that revealed the secret of the gods. The wise man learned it in a dream. Now take your counsel, what shall be done with him? Then Enlil went up into the boat. He took me by the hand and my wife and made us enter the boat and kneel down on either side. He's standing between us. He touched our forge to bless us, saying, In time past, Utnapishkin was a mortal man. Henceforth, he and his wife shall live in the distance at the mouth of the river. Thus it was that the gods took me and placed me here to live in the distance at the mouth of the river. That's the principal uh, part of the Babylonian story of the flood. Now then, um, there are resemblances to the Bible story and there are differences. Anybody want to say what some of the resemblances are here? Of course, there was a lot of water. That's the first one. Yeah, that's right. Well, I spoke to the direction by the God, and he was commanded to take all these sacrifice for God over gods and a number of other things like this. Also the physical causes of the flood. In the, in the Babylonian story, rain, wind, lightning, and thunder. In the Bible, rain and the breaking up of the fountains of the great deep, which probably means the ocean. And uh, also both of them specify the length of the flood, but which is longer, the Bible flood or the Babylonian flood? The Bible flood lasted over a year before they got out of the ark. 371 days. The uh, Gilgamesh epic, six days and nights. The Sumerian, seven days and nights. And uh, also a close correspondence is this releasing the birds. The um, Gilgamesh story has a dove, then a swallow, then a raven. The Bible, the raven is sent out first and doesn't come back. Now, a raven is a tough bird, you know, like a crow. It's not fussy about where it lights or what it eats. It's not dainty at all. A dead rabbit from last year's season, the raven's just okay. And uh, the dove, on the other hand, is a clean living bird and will not light on a dirty place and uh, does not like to... Uh, anything up in the mountains or does not like to light in trees. It wants to be on a, on a flat surface in a valley somewhere and it will not get its feet dirty if it can possibly help it. That's the difference between the dove and the raven. But the dove is not a very strong bird and it couldn't fly very long back and forth without becoming exhausted and having a place to have to have a place to stop and land and rest. And uh, this is the explanation of the dove coming back and so forth, whereas the uh, raven had some place to stop and didn't have to come back. Now, Unger says the similarities all concern little details about the, uh, the uh, order of events here and the uh, various features of the flood and what happened. 
But the differences are vastly more important. And he says there are basic differences in theology and morality and in philosophy. Uh, nobody can read the Babylonian story of the flood in any one of these ancient versions without being impressed immediately with the low idea of the gods that they had. Their gods are quarrelsome, deceitful, nasty and mean, just like lots of people are. And uh, the gods are almost, you could say, the mirror image of the inner character of the Babylonian people, among whom this story was handed down. And uh, certainly this is the great variance with the pure and lofty idea of God in the Bible, where there's only one God, he is the transcendent above the world, he is uninfluenced by uh, the kind of thing that influenced the Babylonian gods. Now, um, also, um, in the moral conception, in the Genesis account, it is perfectly clear that the flood was a moral judgment on the human race. We read, the earth was filled with violence. Nobody's life was sick. Uh, it was a worldwide crime wave. And sin had gone overboard. And this was the reason for the flood. God said that because of the wickedness of people, he would send a flood. Now, how about the Babylonian account of the flood in respect to this matter? Yeah, now it does say something about on the sinner lay his sin and so forth, but this is obscured. This is not uh, prominent, and it's, uh, you see, it's partly put in the shade again by the statements that the flood was caused by a quarrel among the gods. And one of the gods blames another of the gods for this flood, and they, they, they dispute and argue about it among themselves. Whose fault is this anyhow? And uh, so the fact that humans have some sins is very much in the shade. This is clouded and obscured in the Babylonian story. And in the Bible account, it's perfectly clear. Well, that's question uh, 76, and we'll stop there at this point for the day. hope you have a nice weekend.